When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Hello, this is Jennifer Rubin, and this is Jen Rubin's Green Room. I hope you had a lovely Thanksgiving. All the leftovers are gone. The guests are gone. You've taken that pretty, pretty tablecloth to the cleaners. You've cleaned up the house, and now it's quiet again. Isn't that nice to have your house back to normal? Well, I really do hope it was a lovely holiday. And now we plunge into the Christmas season. Of course, the Christmas decorations were up, at least in our neighborhood, even before the Thanksgiving Day festivities. But that's the way of the world, isn't it? Well, the news did not wait for the holidays, and we have a lot of it um, of late. Um, to begin with, we not only had a successful pause in the Gaza-Israeli war, um, but we extended that pause. And that was due, really, to the solo work, the intervention, the constant nudging and nudging of President Biden, who is a roll-up-the-sleeves kind of diplomat, who knows all these people, who pushed and pushed and pushed. And as a result, um, as of Tuesday afternoon, at least, some 69 hostages, mostly Israeli, but other nationalities as well, have been released. And there is hope for more days of pause and more hostages to be released. Of course, Gaza has also benefited in that hundreds of trucks of supplies have gotten in. And I just want to point out, had Biden listened to his critics, none of this would have happened. Remember weeks ago, they were calling for an immediate ceasefire. Just stop the fighting. Israel has to stop. Well, had that occurred, I sincerely doubt any of the hostages would have been released. And likewise, I don't think Israel would have been inclined to allow truckloads uh, and caravans full of supplies into Gaza. So there's something to be said for letting the noise play itself out and simply doing what his experience, his knowledge, his gut tells him is the right thing to do. And once more, I think uh, we have a president who has exceeded expectations. Now, the war, at least of this moment um, does not appear to be ending after whatever pause is completed. The Israelis need to go back in and they need to remove Hamas. The notion that you could leave Hamas in place and still pursue any kind of peaceful resolution with the Palestinians was a failed strategy by, wait for it, Bibi Netanyahu. It's ironic that the left-wing critics of Biden are pursuing exactly the same strategy that Bibi Netanyahu has now been vilified, and that is leaving Hamas in place to fight another day, which essentially means you'll never have a two-state solution. You'll never have a unified Palestinian government so long as Hamas rules in Gaza and the PA more or less uh, is in charge in the West Bank. So I think if we're going to get any further in terms of a peaceful resolution, a long-term resolution, if the Palestinians are going to have any chance of having self-determination, and if we're going to get those hostages back, uh, the men as well as the women and the children, I think President Biden is frankly on the right track, and those talks continue as we speak. The other big news of the week, of course, is that George Santos is about to become a footnote in history, a answer to a trivia question, because he is on the way out. The Democrats have made another motion to expel. That's going to take place very quickly. And I suspect that they will have the two-thirds ready to dump him. But here's what's interesting. Why poor George Santos? After all, 
he didn't plot to overthrow the government. He hasn't made grotesquely anti-Semitic comments about space lasers cooked up by the Rothschild family, as MTG has. He has not threatened harm, physical harm, against other members. He didn't intimate that, for example, Kevin McCarthy should use the gavel to strike former Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Those are things that are done by other Republicans. His great crime was being so foolish and so outlandish as to call attention to himself through grotesque, silly lies and through grotesque fraud and spending on things like Botox and cosmetics and clothing, which of course has set him up for any measure of ridicule. And by the way, he deserves it. He shouldn't be in the House. But frankly, neither should a whole lot of other people. And I think when these Republicans get their dander up and think, oh, he's not fit to serve, they best be looking in the mirror because many of them are not either. If you have, as our current speaker did, contributed to an attempt to overthrow a legal, honest election, in his case, by rounding up votes to sign a brief to the Supreme Court that would have disenfranchised millions of Americans. If you've done that, you shouldn't be in the House either. And if you were part of those meetings, that little cabal meeting in the White House with uh, Donald Trump, as people like Scott Perry were, you shouldn't be in the House either. But alas, that's not how it's going to work. George Santos will probably be leaving us very shortly. And by the way, they'll have a special election. That seat, in all likelihood, will be filled by a Democrat. So Mike Johnson will have one less seat to maneuver about. And that does bring us to the business of the House. Remember, time is ticking once again. In January, part of the spending apparatus is going to shut down, and in February, the rest of it will. So Mike Johnson is now in the unenviable but inevitable position of having to deal with his crazies, and that is to get a spending deal through that would result not only in continuation of government operations, but also, remember, they are trying to get funding for Israeli aid. They're trying to get funding for Ukraine aid for all of their catawalling and professions of support for Israel, the Republicans haven't passed a funding bill that would actually help Israel during this period of time, replenish um, the military equipment that's been used, give them additional aid. So we'll see whether he can pull this off. Um, I'm of two minds, frankly. I don't know whether at this point the Republicans are just so exhausted, they'll throw up their hands and say, okay, let's let the Democrats once again supply most of the votes and get these important things done. That could well be their attitude. Or it may be that they insist that he take one for the team and shut down the government, which, of course, would be disastrous. I'm a little bit inclined, although I don't feel strongly about it, to think that they're going to muddle through and Democrats, as they have been, are going to be the grown-ups in the room to continue on um, the government spending and to actually get aid to our allies. Now, if you take a step back from the day-to-day, the week-to-week, you get a very interesting perspective, I think, on this president. Look at the economy. Inflation is way down. Gas prices are way down. During a holiday weekend, they were even down. The growth rate is high. The unemployment rate is low. Productivity is increasing. Thousands of people are being employed in new green industries and in new chip plants in the heartland. The economy is pretty darn strong. And in spite of all of the complaints and in spite of all the polling showing people think we're in a recession, which is positively ridiculous, but Joe Biden has done really a masterful job of presiding over a very fast, very successful recovery that far outstrips the Europeans and which has been achieved with reduced uh, inflation and without a recession, at least so far. So that's something I think that often gets lost in the translation about poll numbers and no one likes him and he's too old and we should get rid of him. What more do you want this man to do? He's presided over 
remarkable economic recovery. He has put together alliances that have allowed Ukraine to survive, that are pushing towards some kind of break in the fighting in the Middle East. What more do you expect from this man? And the answer is there's nothing that he could possibly do that would satisfy the critics. And there's nothing he could possibly do that would force the media to say, you know what? The election in 2024 is between one crazy, slightly demented guy who tried to overthrow the government and someone who's been a darn good president. Because if they say that, what's the interest level? Where do the clicks come from? Where do the eyeballs come from for the next year? So they have made it their mission to make the incumbent president seem as decrepit, as incapable as his predecessor, which is positively absurd. Joe Biden has been arguably the strongest president in decades, and his almost certain competitor has been by far the worst president in history. So the media will continue to treat them as equivalent, but that doesn't mean you and I should. And I'll end with this little note before we get to this week's guest, and that is Nikki Haley. There is a little bit of a Haley boomlet going on. Today, when we are recording this on Tuesday, the Koch Brothers Network has decided to support her. The polling shows that she's essentially pulled into second place with the hapless Ron DeSantis in places like Iowa and New Hampshire. She's getting a lot of positive buzz from the so-called normal Republicans. And she appears to be, frankly, the only game in town if Republicans are going to dump Donald Trump. And that's a big if. I think she is clearly the best of the rest, meaning she is both the least crazy and secondly, the most capable of actually winning some primaries. But that doesn't mean she's got a ghost of a chance to beat Donald Trump. He is ahead by something like 50 points in the Republican primary because these people have been brainwashed after hundreds of hours, thousands of hours of watching right-wing media, after demonizing the so-called deep state, after demonizing the courts, demonizing Jack Smith. These people have come to believe that Donald Trump is their savior. He is their champion. He is their vindication. He is their retribution, after all. And they seem just bound and determined to put this guy back in office for another four years, regardless of the consequences, or maybe because of the consequences for democracy. After all, these people are not really interested in democracy because democracy means that the positions they have taken on things like abortion, tax cuts for the rich, won't get done because they are unpopular. And that's the fundamental truth, not only about Nikki Haley, but about her entire party. And that is they've given up on democracy because democracy will not deliver what they want. What they want is out of touch with the vast majority of Americans. What they want is not the sum total of a pluralistic, tolerant democracy. It's what a small, relatively small, we're talking 30, 35% of the electorate, not even the registered voters, um, who are advancing this right-wing, white Christian nationalism view of America, that it was here to protect the interests of white people and to further Western civilization, however they define it. But they're not going to get their way if there's true democracy. And that's why we have had this battle over how much democracy they're going to allow, how many people they are going to allow to vote, how many of those votes get counted, how clever the Congress can be in overturning the results, because they cannot win when we respect the will of the people. And that's fundamentally where we are coming to. Are we going to have a democracy in which a pluralistic society gets to win elections when they get the most votes or aren't we? And that's kind of where we come back to. So welcome back for the holidays. We're now in the sprint to the end of the year. We are not going to see a Trump trial quite yet, but we will see, I think, several trials next year. And in the meantime, keep the faith, keep working, don't pay attention to those polls, 
And if you like this program, please tell your friends. They can listen. We have a new program dropping every Wednesday. Please have them follow on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever they get their podcasts. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. And this week's guest is someone who I admire greatly. People often ask, who do you read? Who do you follow? And really at the top of my list is Heather Cox Richardson. She's a historian. She teaches at Boston College. She's the author of many books, but some of you may know her from her daily Letters from an American, which are many histories on a daily basis of this extraordinary time that we are in. And I think she's the perfect person because she has been able to do, I think, what journalists have not, and that is explain in the larger sense how we got here, what is going on, and maybe even how we get out of this. Uh, she is a absolute delight. Um, so without further ado, Heather, welcome to the show. Oh, it's such a joy to be here. It is an absolute pleasure. I know that we have followed each other religiously on social media, and uh, I read all of your letters, and uh, I'm just delighted to have you talk to us. Um, I think this is kind of the glory days of historians in a way, isn't it? Well, I suppose so. I mean, it it, it would be nice not to be needed, I have to say. Exactly. Now, what what was your historical focus before this era? Was it on contemporary American politics or was it more distant in time from present day? My first three books were on 19th century America. And then I, I guess for the first four books were on 19th century America. And then I did a sweeping history of the Republican Party from, uh, really, I started it with the, the, uh, Declaration of Independence, but then um, the Constitution forward until the present. And then I did another book on that scale, then another book on that scale. The common thread is that I focus on politics and economics to test the difference between what people think is happening in the world versus what is actually happening in the world. Because I think that divorce between reality and image is where the the where nations live, essentially. And I'm always interested in how that plays out. Fascinating. Let me ask you then, this is a, a wonderful segue, um, to compare this era to the 1850s when you had the gentry class in the South um, that uh, was fighting to maintain their, not only their economic superiority, but obviously their racial hegemony. Um, how is the present day like that and how is it different I think it's like it in a lot of ways. So what you're identifying is that in the 1840s and then into the 1850s, the elite enslavers in the American South, and they made up about 1% of the population, took over the Supreme Court, the presidency, and the Senate. And they did so with the determination that the majority of Americans could not interfere with their ownership of property. And they rooted that in the Constitution. And what they meant was that they had a right to enslave their neighbors and that they had a right to spread that system of human enslavement across the American West. And then once they had control of new states in the American West, the West and the South could work together to get rid of freedom in the American North. So what they were really trying to do was to change American democracy to an oligarchy. And if anybody's interested, you can actually look at a number of speeches from that period and search for the word oligarchy, and you'll be shocked at how often it comes up. Because people did recognize what was happening, but those elite enslavers managed to convince their followers that unless they stayed in power, their Black neighbors would would take over their property, that they would rape their daughters and their wives, and that they would create anarchy. So they managed to monopolize the the media system in the American South and to be very careful about who could actually vote in the South. And so they managed to stay in power. 
So you had something that looked very similar to what's happening today. But the thing that I'm really interested in right now is that if you looked at America in 1853, you would have assumed that the elite enslavers were going to win. And they certainly did. They were the richest people in the United States and some of the richest people in the world. They were very articulate about wanting to take over the American government and spread that system of enslavement around the world. Alexander Stevenson's Cornerstone speech of 1861 is all about that. And it really seemed as if they had sewn up everything um, and that really all that was left was a holding action in the House of Representatives. And then in 1854, they managed to get through the House of Representatives a law, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, that would, in fact, spread enslavement to the American West. And when that happened, a lot of Americans who previously hadn't been paying attention woke up. Abraham Lincoln was one of them, by the way, woke up and said, you know, we don't agree with each other about immigration. We don't agree with each other about finances. We don't agree with each other about internal improvements. But by God, we can agree with each other that this country should not be taken over by oligarchs. By 1856, they had a new political party, the Republican Party. By 1859, Abraham Lincoln had articulated a new vision of the American government for that party, calling for a government that responded to ordinary Americans rather than to simply those elite enslavers and should be rested on the Declaration of Independence. By 1860, voters had put him in the White House. By 1863, he had signed the Emancipation Proclamation that ended the system of human enslavement in the United States. And by November of 1863, he had given the Gettysburg Address, calling for a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, and calling for the United States to base itself on a new birth of freedom. So, when I look at the 50s, I, the 1850s, I certainly see the same pattern of a few rich people trying to take over our democracy. But more than that, I see this groundswell of ordinary Americans saying, wait a minute, that's not what we signed up for, and we're taking this country back. Fascinating. And yet, in their immediate area, they were able to convince hundreds of thousands of whites who were never slave owners, who would never have the ability, in fact, were competing with free labor, with slave labor, to take up their cause because their propaganda machine was so powerful. You know, we think of modern media as so effective, but that entire culture permeated through churches, through every possible outlet, was really extremely successful, as I said, in getting people to go off to war for something they themselves didn't have and was not in their own financial interest. Well, yes, and it's even worse than that, because one of the reasons there was such a body of poor whites that were willing to go fight was because the economic policies of those elite enslavers had pushed a lot of poor white farmers off their lands, and they were essentially roving gangs at that point. And one of the things that always jumps out to me in the moment we're in, recognizing all the horror of it and the responsibility that people are taking on themselves when they commit the acts that they are committing, is that as a historian, I know what happened to those poor white men who, meaning economically poor, by the way, those poor white men who followed the elite enslavers into battle, because at the end of the day, they were the ones who lost their lives. They were the ones who lost their families. They were the ones who lost their property. They were the ones who lost their opportunity for education. And they were the ones who ended up in a region that was mired in poverty for the next hundred years. And, you know, all these keyboard warriors who somehow seem to think they're going to come out on top just break my heart because we know full well they're not going to. Fascinating. One of the other interesting parallels, um, perhaps, is that, of course, that we had bloody Kansas, which was this vicious war as the two sides competed to who could populate um, Kansas faster and therefore control the destiny of slavery. And was it that bloody specter that helped bring about the um, sort of rethinking of America by average Americans? Was it the legislation itself or was it some combination of the two? Because I'm obviously very interested in what happens when Americans see violence as taking center stage rather than politics, which is supposed to be the absence of violence. You know, it's so interesting. I think you're the first person who has ever in my entire career asked me about bleeding Kansas. 
And Bleeding Kansas is what happened after the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act through the House of Representatives in May of 1854. And, And the kicker to Bleeding Kansas was that with the opening of the Kansas and Nebraska territories under that law, there was no land that was legally surveyed in Kansas yet. That actually is really going to matter because what happens is that settlers rush in from both the north and the south and they fight bitterly over who gets control of what land. You get what are called claim jumpers, people who come in and take a take land that somebody else has claimed. Nobody has legal right to it. And what you get is a number of murders that are happened over those claims that get attention and people try and get support by saying he attacked me because I support slavery and he attacked me because I don't support slavery. So you get the the politicization of what is essentially a, a land grab or, you know, an attempt to, to get control of land land that has not been legally surveyed because the government's not really there yet. But then quickly, that's 54 and 55, but quickly you get the problem in Kansas of the fact that the ele- the first election in the territory is fraudulent. And we know it's fraudulent because in one case, there's actually a list of voters who were copied name by name from a Missouri directory. Now that again, wasn't all that uncommon in a territory in this era when people um, m- often voted in a territory expecting they would move to it. But this was pretty clearly an attempt to to uh, determine that Kansas would, in fact, be a slave territory. So the way that that played out was that Southerners looked at the fact that there was a vote in the original um, election in Kansas to promote the uh, promote the institution of enslavement there, and they were perfectly fine with that because they reasoned that it was the last possible state that Southerners could get to be a slave state. Whereas Northerners looked at that and like, and they were like, wait a minute here, you're totally cheating when most of us don't want to have slavery here. And so then Kansas becomes tied up in this fight over the fact that the majority of settlers in Kansas within about a year are pretty clearly people who don't want enslavement. But the early establishment by those early votes was for a slave state. And then, of course, it ripples across the, the country into Congress and then eventually into the White House. And in, the, in Congress, you're actually going to have fist fights over what is happening in Kansas. And it becomes this huge issue where, for example, in 1856, not only do you have the the real issue of bleeding Kansas getting more and more public, that's actually the cause for which the Southerner beats up Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner on the floor of the Senate and, you know, cuts his head to the bone. There's blood everywhere. And a bunch of Southern senators were standing there watching him and watching this happen. And one of them later, a journalist later asked one of them, why didn't you intervene? And they said, well, we didn't think it was our fight. So if you're a Northerner, you look at that and you think, my God, they're not letting us vote. And now they're literally trying to kill us on the floor of the Senate. This is not what democracy is all about. So it was a case, I think, of people seeing violence and beginning to think it was all right. Certainly the Southerners had been pushing violence as a solution to the fact that they had become a minority in the, in the government for a long time and deciding that that was an okay way to behave. But what you finally got after 1856 was Northerners watching that violence and for, for, a number of years they'd been like, okay, this isn't okay, but you know we can put up with this. And once the uh, the uh, Preston Brooks beats up Charles Sumner, goes back home, and then is promptly unanimously reelected, um, Northerners stand up and they say, "That's it." we will fight over this. There's a very famous speech by Anson Burlingame, who was Charles Sumner's Massachusetts colleague in the House of Representatives. And it became a a very famous speech because it's the first time that Northerners said, okay, we're done. We're really going to fight this. And that's another place I think you can see some parallels between the past and the present. The the sort of howls now from the radical right when those of us who are trying to protect the the democracy and the Constitution are suddenly um, characterized as people who are being aggressive when all we're doing is trying to hold the line. Fascinating. And it's also so interesting how violence elsewhere eventually percolates into the halls of Congress. And although we're not caning one another, apparently they're elbowing one another and um, giving one another shots and challenging people to uh, fistfights. There does seem to be this correlation between actual 
physical violence and the rise of um, these oligarchical and racial movements. And it's not simply coincidence that these two things go together. Um, it's not simply coincidence that violence inside the halls of Congress and outside the halls of Congress are part and parcel of this. Because, of course, these people can't control the majority through normal democratic processes. So let me ask you, we do see these very scary polls that show a larger and larger percentage of people believe sometimes violence is necessary. How do you see violence in current American politics? Is it a minor sideshow? Has it become an instrument of the Republican Party? Is it something that you think kind of came and went on January 6th? Talk to us a little bit about violence and the overall threats to the procedural legal aspects of democracy. So you've put your finger on something very important there, and that is that the resort to violence is coming from the right. It is not coming from the liberals in the the government. And by liberals, of course, just to be clear, that is a definition of those people who defend liberal democracy. It doesn't necessarily mean they are Democrats or Republicans or any other party. They're people who are defending democracy. And those people who are threatening violence or engaging in violence are those who are outside that democratic system at this point. And they're doing it for precisely the reason you identify that they recognize that they're a numerical minority and that what do you do if you're a numerical minority and you know you can't win on your ideas, you start to threaten violence. And at this point, I think that that threat of violence is deeply ingrained in the MAGA Republicans. And it has come there, I think, not solely from this moment of recognizing and having to grapple with the fact they're a minority, but because one of the ways in which this current day Republican Party came into power was through the lionization of the idea of the sort of the cowboy individual, if you think about it that way. And the, that image of the American cowboy as, an, as a guy who's just trying to defend his family and wants the government to stay out of his business and wields a gun and protects his own against those people out there, um, was directly out of Reconstruction. And in the Reconstruction years, the cowboy image became um, the, the individual who stood against a government that by 1871, those who really disliked black rights were insisting was an, a socialist government that was characterized by the fact that the federal government was trying to protect black rights. So the cowboy started to stand as an image against the idea of a government that protected minority rights. And of course, uh, Barry Goldwater resurrects that image in politics, picking it up at, from the television shows that really just sprouted like mushrooms after the Brown versus Board of Education decision in 1954. We get all of a sudden all these TV westerns. At one point, I think there were nine of them on primetime TV. And of course, Bonanza is the first one that is produced in color and it's shown all around the world. Very famous TV show. And Barry Goldwater brings that into politics. And of course, Ronald Reagan picks that up. And that idea of the American as cowboy becomes became very central to the idea of this individual pushing back against the government. And by the 1990s, after the rise of talk radio and after the establishment of the Fox News Channel in 1996, you started to see uh, right-wing militias beginning to grab hold of this idea that they were these individuals out there who were standing against the government. And there's really quite a direct line from those militias to the kinds of right-wing gangs that gathered in Charlottesville, Virginia in August of 2017 and became the backbone of the Trump movement. So in addition to there being this sort of general, if you're a minor, political minority, you need to use force, we have a much more specific, the ideology of this particular Republican Party has fed the idea of violence as being the answer. And then in, in, to answer your question about whether this is a passing thing, um, I, I will point out that the United States right now is extraordinarily violent in terms of its mass shootings, for example, and the number of people dying from mass shootings. And and I do like to make the point that the, the number of more than 50% of our mass shootings are based in domestic violence, although people don't tend to pay a lot of attention to that. And they're the same dynamic as at play, the domination of people who are refusing to do what a person wants them to do. And that sort of 
zeitgeist, if you will, in the popular mind is very much with us. And I don't think it's going anywhere in a hurry. And this, some people refer to it as toxic masculinity um, that Donald Trump um, absolutely personifies in his violation of women, in his calls for violence, in his um, embrace of thuggery, which then kind of circulates to his followers and comes back in a loop um, of, you know, a very unvirtuous um, loop of violence. It is also fascinating, if you look historically, that virtually all of these right-wing dictators, um, that misogyny, repression of women, the domestication of women, the desire to change and chase women out of the public square is really embedded in the entire movement. Um, Was that so earlier in American history or is that a relatively new phenomenon? No, absolutely. Absolutely. It has been central, the idea. And again, think of the cowboy, the women in in, in that Western mythology are wives and mothers or they're sex workers. And the reality, of course, was that women were instrumental to the survival in the American West and that most of the ability to survive under those conditions depended on trading, depended on kinship networks. I mean, kinship networks were central to surviving in the American West. And that all got bled out of the myth of the American cowboy. But, you know, one of the things that I've been playing with writing about lately is this whole emphasis on masculinity as that toxic masculinity that you're talking about. And there's a number of books about this. People like uh, Missouri Senator Josh Hawley have a book out about it. And there's lots of articles about it everywhere. Um, Is that it was only one version. And it was actually not a common version of what it meant to be a man in the United States. So one of the things that really jumps out with the rise of the American cowboy and how some unreconstructed white Southerners doubled down on that was the fact that a number of white Southerners and black Southerners and Hispanic Southerners pushed back on that. And they said, wait a minute, that's not what being a man is all about. Being a man is about supporting a community and reasoning through things, getting an education, making sure people don't wield guns everywhere. Instead of saying, hey, let's take it out and fight it out. No, let's have a debate about it. Let's include more voices. And that was central to the populist movement in the 1890s that in fact ended up taking taking over much of the American South and West from 1890 to about 1896 and ended up putting most of their ideas into the public sphere to be enacted on and put into place during the progressive era of the early 20th century. Fascinating. You have a new book out. Uh, You're one of the most prolific people I know, um, entitled Democracy's Awakening, um, Notes uh, on the State of America. Um, Why this book? Why now? And talk to us a little bit about the relationship between that book and your wonderful letters from an American that we enjoy on an ongoing basis. So the book was originally designed to be a compilation of the uh, short essays that answer the questions that people ask me every single day, which is how do the parties switch sides? Um, What's the Southern strategy? Tell me about the Electoral College. And what I discovered was when I had written all the 30 short chapters, what people asked me most often was, how did we get here? What on earth is going on? And how we get out? So I recognized that that was really the overarching theme of the book. And then I put the book aside for a number of months. And when I went back to it, I discovered it had told me a completely different story than I had thought when I was writing it the first time. And I credit my readers with this because it what it showed was how democracies can be dismantled by a strong man using certain language, the language you and I have identified here from the 1850s and again the present, and by the use of false history. 
And then it showed me how once you had set up that uh, a population that had been so demoralized, it opened the way for a strong man like someone like Donald Trump, who used that population and welded it into a movement using certain techniques. But then crucially, the last section talks about how you can use language and history to reclaim democracy. And that part to me is by far the most interesting, because it looks at all of U.S. history, both as a roadmap for expanding the concepts of liberal democracy through transparency, through um, inclusion of new voices, through demonstrations of citizenship, through all sorts of these different steps. But it reworks American history to say, yeah, it's really okay to understand that the Declaration of Independence and the principles that it sets up, that people should be equal before the law and have a right to have a say in their government. Um, that's the cent- central to what it means to be an American. But the reason that we have managed to expand our democracy over all these years is because marginalized Americans have grabbed hold of that set of ideas and said, hey, that's great, but what about me? And so what that does, I think, is it offers agency back to ordinary Americans who are suffering perhaps in this, the current climate we're in, to say, listen, it's your democracy. You should do whatever you want with it. And that, I think, is, um, I think that's why the book is important. Absolutely. Um, And the book that I did in the wake of Donald Trump's election looked at women who f- kind of came to that because of who Donald Trump was and what he represented and that he had beaten a magnificently qualified woman and here was a atrociously unqualified male, that it really kind of shocked, horrified women who then, as we saw, entered politics for the first time, ran for office, set up huge networks um, that are still in place. They used, you talked about the uh, networks of the of the West. These women put together new networks, new ways of organizing. And I think that is still there. The concern we all have is whether exhaustion, fatigue, um, a certain sense of denial that, um, oh, it can't happen again, will impede those um, sort of antibodies of democracy and that participatory democracy that we really saw flourish beginning with the Women's March in the wake of Donald Trump's election. How do you see the fate of those sorts of movements, which we did see kind of burst up. And then when we saw the Black Lives movement as well, how do you see them surviving through this period and continuing the fight, which never seems to be won? And it isn't ever won. Well, but it can, it can continue to be expanded. And, you know, I think you're, you're right to identify, first of all, how important women were recognizing what Trump was all about, because we'd all had that boss or that relative or whatever. And we recognized a lot of things that men maybe didn't. But I think women have continued to be energized, not only on the principles and on the fact that a lot of them actually quite like to have public voices now, but also because of the Dobbs versus yes. Jackson women's health decision yes. of June in 2022. I mean, I, I was talking to a, a, a Republican man who said, women are going to forget about that. And I was like, what planet do you live exactly. on that you think women are going to forget about that? But it's not just women. I mean, one of the things that really jumps out to me in the last several years is the importance of la- the labor movement. Yes. I mean, the UAW contracts that were ratified, I don't, uh, you know, in, in, uh, right before Thanksgiving, uh, are the biggest gains that organized labor has had in like 40 years. Absolutely. And they don't seem to be slowing down anytime soon. And of course, they were not the only, uh, unions that have been involved in, in, rolling back the 40 years in which wealth so dramatically moved to the very top of the scale. So, you know, it is, it is my sense that we are, and maybe one of the reasons I care so much about keeping the record is that we are in a movement that looks to me so much like the 1880s and the 1890s, when it really looked as if the robber barons had sewn up everything and the rest of us were going to be lucky to, you know, 
nail together, you know, body and soul. And what happened was that people, again, woke up to the idea that we're supposed to be treated equally before the law and we're supposed to have a say in our government. And they began to push back against that. And crucially, they began, as as that anger and those principles bubbled up, they threw up, if you will, new politicians who reacted to those voters and who began to turn the ship of state. And, you know, the for every night that I look and despair at the news, I, there, there are always signs that people are pushing back. What concerns me is that in some ways, we really do look like 1853 with the idea that the MAGA Republicans have sewn up, for example, the election counting in Republican-dominated states. Right. And they have sewn up uh, Republican-dominated states with gerrymandering that is just so over the top. It's, you know, it's, look at North Carolina, where it's virtually impossible, or Wisconsin, where it's virtually impossible for for a Democrat to, uh, for the Democrats to win control of the state house. So, I mean, win control of the legislature. So, you know, that worries me. A free and fair election, I think we're entering a new progressive era, yeah. but we don't have free and fair elections. And that's what keeps me up at night. Absolutely. It's so interesting. Bob Putnam has written a book about this, um, and he talks about the movement from the I to the we, that the 1890s were an era of I, the robber baron, the self-made man, the accumulation of wealth. And he points to not only in politics and economics, but in culture as well, kind of a rediscovering of our collective power, a sense of responsibility to one another. Um, and I certainly hope he's right in saying, and you're right in saying, that the movement from the era of the robber barons to the progressive era is really somewhat of a model, perhaps, for how we do this. And it is very much bottom-up and very much um, based on labor unions, civic organizations, a new sense of community. Um, And that, to me, does make me somewhat hopeful, um, I think. Um, One of the reasons why people, I think, are so uh, gloomy sometimes is the media. Um, And I am part of it. I rail at it. Um, And they seem to be disappointed in the media's inability to do what the media has traditionally done, which is stand up to the powerful, stand up hold the powerful accountable in that kind of tradition. And they see it as either lazy or indifferent, or in the case of right-wing media, a tool now of the powerful. Talk to us a little bit about how the media plays into this dynamic. And if it's as bad or worse than people sometimes perceive it, and how ordinary people need not be prisoner of a media structure that is perhaps not really serving the public interest in the way it should. Can I turn that back on you yep, to start? Sure. Because I have very strong ideas about it, but um, but you're in it. Yeah. And, you know, I'm... I, in the in a way, because I'm a historian, the the ju- journalists are really kind of a tool for me more than an end. So I don't, in a funny way, I don't have a horse in that game. How do you perceive it? Well, I think they the the whole idea, first of all, of neutrality of objectivity is a relatively new thing in journalism, as you know better than anyone else. In the 19th century, there were no, there was not sort of a journalistic ethic. There were Republican papers and there were Democratic papers. They had wildly different views of things and ways of covering things. But somewhere along the line in the 20th century, this model of benign neutrality, of expertise, of sort of um, a arbiter of two sides arose. And for a while, it worked because there was a consensus in American society on democracy. Um, there were different views on economics, on social policy, on uh, poverty, and a whole slew of issues. But both were operating within the democratic sphere. So you could go to one party and say, well, what do you think about X? And you get an answer. And you go to the other party and they say, what do you think about X? And they would give you an answer. 
but there was a commonality of facts. There was a commonality of reality. Once that broke down, the media now, I think, is lost, to be honest. Not lost in the sense of losing, although they are losing audience, but in the weeds. They can't figure out how to cope with that. They cannot figure out how to operate in a world in which the lies, the uh, dysfunction, the violence is really coming only from one side because they've been brought up in a world in which you're not supposed to, quote, take sides. And so for them to constantly be pointing the finger, they feel uncomfortable doing that. And ironically, you want to bring these people by the lapels um, and say, there's a reason why it is only going in one direction. And that's because that's the reality. That's the reality you have to cover. That's the reality that we're presented with. And unfortunately, it is very hard to break these habits of mind, these kind of code of professional ethics that they operate in. And so if Donald Trump has deficits, like he committed 91 felonies, for example, tried to overthrow the government, well, we have to come up with some deficits for Biden, and therefore we're going to write story after story about the man's age. Forget the fact that he flies around the world doing, you know, 24-hour diplomacy. Forget the fact that he's on his bicycle. Forget the fact that he's, you know, um, more fit than most Americans. Um, they have to equal the scales. And that's why this obsession on Biden's age, this obsession on Democrats being worried about their age becomes, you know, a house of mirrors. We write about it. Democrats are upset about it. Therefore, we're going to write about Democrats upset about their age. And therefore, the level of angst goes up. And we write about how Biden is now trying to fend off concerns about his age. And it kind of dribbles on and on and on into this malicious circle. And meanwhile, we have a fascist planning to round people up and to use the military to put down civil demonstrations. So it is incredibly frustrating. At the same time, I think for the first time, they are very much aware of the problem. And when you say, what about ism? When you say both sides ism, they know what you're talking about. They get that. They just sort of haven't figured out a new modality for reporting that seems to them, quote, fair, that seems to them as in keeping with their role as arbiter, as neutral, as objective. Um, and I think that has gotten in their way terribly. But but you don't, you have not fallen to that. No, I read you religiously <laughs> no. every day. So how did you? How do you, I mean? First of all, how, why didn't you fall into that? And second of all, how does that make you? Does that make you popular or unpopular in the newsroom? It makes me very unpopular. Um, not only in my newsroom, other newsrooms all over. I think people um, really resent it when you point this stuff out. They get really upset with you. You just want us to pick a side. No, I want you to pick the side of truth, actually. I want you to pick the side of democracy. And there are a few of us who are out there beating the drum. And I think one of the reasons I never fell prey to this is journalism was not my first career. Um, I was a history major. I was a lawyer for 20 years. I didn't come with this expectation that I had to operate within this false prism of quote, neutrality. I came from a tradition of advocacy. That's what lawyers do. They understand both sides. They have to be able to spell out the phenomenon that's going on in opposition. But they also are able to take what other people are saying, analyze it, test if it's true, test if it's supported by evidence, test to see if it holds up to the light of history and the light of you know, scientific examination. So I think it's much easier for me and those people who came to journalism from another profession in some sense, and also I'm on the opinion side, so I, um, I realize a very different set of constraints. But I do think it's... Um, it is frustrating, to put it mildly, um, and it's terrifying because uh, I was having a conversation with Jay Rosen, who 
like me, who actually invented the phrase, talk about the stakes, not the odds, not the risks, meaning talk about the stuff of what is really going on here. And he said, Jennifer, you're acting like it's the media's job to keep us all informed as good citizens. And it struck me, oh my gosh, that's really was my expectation. And of course, it's not. It's big business. It's commercialization. It's slicing and dicing to get a share of the market um, and to be able to um, get eyeballs and clicks. And it struck me that maybe we've invested too much hope in the media, that they're somehow going to suddenly convince people of what is in front of them. And I get readers all the time who say, why don't we read more of, or why don't we see more of? And it's there. The real question is, why don't we see more people reacting to what is there, what they know now to be true? So I think the press is indispensable. At times, it does magnificent work. Um, Some of the journalistic work we're seeing being done from outlets like ProPublica are magnificent. But I think there is this fundamental broken thing here. And um, I think there's a real tension, and you see it in newsrooms. Uh, Dan Baltz, who writes on the news side, wrote a wonderful piece this weekend talking about, you know, the stakes are really high here, guys. You can't look away. That was on the news side. But he's right. That's the fact. That's the objective reality of what is going on. And it's interesting you write these wonderful daily accounts. Is that history or is that journalism? And how do you see what you do as different than what journalists are doing? So that was actually a really illuminating um, discussion for the very that very question, because what the Letters from an American are is an attempt to look back at this moment and see the threads that historians will pull out. So it's important to know that the difference between journalists and historians is that journalists are supposed to tell you what happened. You know, they often get stories and scoops and all that. But what historians do is they try and make sense of the way society changes. So we, we're trained in theory. We're trained in really digging to see what really happened. You know, we don't care at all about scoops because we're interested in what, what the larger pattern is. We, If you give me a scoop, I won't know how it fits for a long time. So what I'm trying to do is look at this moment and say, here are the patterns and here are the patterns that tell us, you know, we know how they have affected history in the past, how they've affected societies in the past. Here's how they might uh, th- here are the important pieces that you can make conclusions about how they might affect society in the future. And it's interesting to hear you talk about the way that um, that journalists are approaching this moment, because to me, it's so clear. It is just so clear right. that I, I don't, you know, it's really rare for me to say, oh, I don't know what to write about tonight, because I imagine I'm writing a history book and I'm going through the facts as as one does, you know, yes. reading through the Congressional Globe or, the, or Harper's Weekly or whatever, and you watch the story develop, and then you write about it. You know, that is exactly what I'm doing here. And the the bottom line is I'm always thinking about a graduate student in 150 years. What does she need to know about what happened today? And for example, the I've already written a lot of tonight's letter, and there is a, a major piece that I'm waiting to plug into it. And a lot of things I will sit there and say, does it have to go in today? No, it really doesn't because it's part of a larger project. But there are some things that have to go in today. And so it's just, it's a really different thing. But at the end of the day, I think what it, what it gives people is that larger sense of trajectory of the stakes and not the odds because I don't care about, well, here's a great example. I did not write about the last uh, Republican primary debate. Right. Because what was it going to change? Exactly. I mean, with with Trump as a front runner, it simply didn't matter. Yes. But that day, uh, President Biden had done a selfie with UAW President Sean Fain, in which they were both congratulating each other for this the having negotiated a contract. That to me seemed like a much bigger deal because it was a president on the side of organized labor and they'd had a major win that probably suggested a larger trend in American society. So I ignored the, the debates that everybody else covered and I focused on that 
um, that selfie. And I honestly, I really think at the end of the day, that was the right choice. Absolutely. And um, I, I'm very reassured to hear because I refuse to cover these debates, which are completely meaningless, just like I refuse to cover polls a year in advance, which is completely stakes with no, um, with no meat at all. Uh, it's a funny question to ask, um, but are you optimistic that this is going to work through this period, or are you pessimistic about the fate of democracy, or is the jury simply out? Well, the jury is out. I think we are walking on a knife edge, but I am optimistic about it for this simple reason. I know a lot about American history. We have been in bad straits before. And at the end of the day, American democracy is, I think, a fulfillment of what I consider the ultimate human project, and that is the quest for human self-determination. And at the end of the day, I do not believe a majority of Americans will decide to give up their right to choose their own future. And, you know, I look at, I, I, I know America, and I look at the people in it. And, you know, and I've had a life that has introduced me to a lot of different people at a lot of different levels. And the, the end of the, at the end of the day, most of us are pretty decent people who don't want to order other people around. And the only thing really that worries me is, as I say, the fact that the radicals have sewn up so many pieces of our mechanics that they could, in fact, steal this election. That, I think, is a huge problem, not even in just the small um in the small sense of an election, but in the larger sense of governance, you cannot continue to have a democracy that is governed by people who represent a political minority, because it's only a question of time until the majority gives up on that system. And we're already dancing with the devil here, with the Supreme Court having been um, uh, appointed by uh, presidents and confirmed by senators who represent such a small political minority. We've got presidents who have been installed without the popular vote. We have senators using things like the filibuster. We have gerrymandering. We're already, as I say, dancing with the devil. I think if 2024 shows us that those nodes have been sewn up to the point that the will of the democracy, the will of the majority in a democracy can't be honored. That worries me a lot. Indeed, indeed. And of course, there's some great work being done on that, the tyranny of the minority um, by uh, two wonderful authors who we've had on this show. Um, so I think we need more historians in newsrooms or more news reporters who have a historian on their speed dial um, because um, I think there's a reason why you and a cadre of other historians have become such prominent voices in this time because people are looking for what matters. They're looking for, as you say, the pattern, the where are we going, not who is going to win, but what are we going to lose? Um, and that, I think, is the province of historians. Um, so we are incredibly grateful for the work that you are doing. Um, we read you religiously, and thank you for coming on the show. You've been a terrific guest, and um, we're going to bike you again and have you back sometime soon. I look forward to it. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. And that was Heather Cox Richardson. Wow, I am just blown away by the scope of her knowledge, the both the granular detail and the sweeping themes and trends that she is able to identify. There's a reason why I read her a lot, and that is because she is simply brilliant. And one of the things she said really struck me. Um, actually, many things did, but one thing in particular, which is we have not only two models of America, one white Christian authoritarian and the other that speaks the language of the Declaration, the language of the Constitution, the language of the Gettysburg Address. But we really have two visions of society and how we as people interact with one another. One is 
um, remote, isolated. I don't, I am not my brother's keeper. I have no responsibility for others. And if you take what is mine, I will fight you back. And it's in some sense, a sad kind of pathetic way to go through life. But that is in fact, um, the view of many Americans. And there's another way of interacting with our society, and that is you are part of a community. You are not alone in this world. I am responsible for you. You are responsible for me. We are all improved and empowered when others do well. There is not a zero sum on enlightenment, on success, on creativity, that we all add to the pie. And that view, I think, is not only consistent with the view that Martin Luther King talked about, the beloved community, a Christian community in that instance, but it is also consistent, I think, with the promise of a more perfect union. A more perfect union is one in which more people get included, in which more people have a say in what society looks like, in which more people think that there are ways of determining one's life, changing one's life, improving oneself without running afoul of your neighbor. And I think these two visions of America, one based on an authoritarian and kind of toxic masculinity model, and the other on a much more cooperative, joyful, and communal reality, is really a lot of what we're talking about these days in America. Well, if you enjoyed this show, please tell your friends. They can listen to Jen Rubin's Green Room. Every Wednesday when we drop our new programs, they can get it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever they get their podcasts. Bye-bye.